Well, last week I was uh, in Seattle with a group of men from Genesis, and we had a great, uh, a great week. Uh, we actually tried uh, to come back uh, to be with you uh, on Sunday, but the price tag was about uh, $2,400 uh, to change our tickets, so we decided just to stay where we were. Um, but definitely missed being uh, with Genesis last week. Uh, we were at a conference that was uh, hosted by Mars Hill uh, Community Church in Seattle, uh, and it was a conference uh, with Acts 29, which is the church planting network that Genesis is part of. So it's really challenging, convicting, encouraging, just a blessed week. And so I was real thankful to be there, but I was excited to be back here today with you. So um, I wanted to invite my most favorite person in the world to come up. Her name is Kyla. So everyone say hello to my wife, Kyla. I think two weeks ago, I was telling a story about a pretty young thing, uh, and if you were here two weeks ago, I think I forgot to mention the pretty young thing that I was actually talking about was my wife. So if you were here two weeks ago and you were confused, I was talking about Kyla, and here she is. So um, Kyla has uh, faithfully, for almost four years now, served uh, with our Genesis Kids uh, ministry. And uh, Genesis Kids is our ministry to young people, uh, and it started out with uh, our three kids and a handful of other kids that were coming, but for four years, she has been leading and serving and um, doing a lot of hard work with Genesis Kids. And so this morning, I just wanted to, over the next few weeks, we're going to spotlight a few different ministries going on in the church and different ways that you will be able to be engaged and participate and um, help out with these different ministries. So... Kyla, thank you for faithfully serving for the past four years. I think everyone from Genesis is going to kick in and give you two tickets for a cruise, maybe. Wow. <laughs> Sounds like a great idea to me. And of course, you can pick whoever you would like to go with. And um, so if you could, just uh, a sketch of, I guess, what... Uh, um, what's your heart for Genesis Kids? You've been doing it for four years, so as you just consider the last four years, which it seems hard to believe it's been a long time, but uh, ultimately, at the end of the day, what is your heart for uh, our Genesis Kids community? Well, I would say we have a two-part um, goal with Genesis Kids. One is to um, provide a safe and fun atmosphere for the kids where they can learn about God and learn about how much He loves them and how He delights in them, and that Having a relationship with God should be most important in our lives, and it's also fun. So you'll hear, um, you probably hear already, lots of squeals and laughter uh, coming from the Genesis Kids Room. We try to make it really fun because um, having a relationship with God is exciting, and it's fun, and we want them to know how much he loves them. And the second piece of our um, goal is also to minister to the entire family, um, to minister to parents. We want to provide a place that's safe, and fun, uh, a place that their kids will enjoy going to so that parents are able to participate more fully in the worship service here, that you can uh, relax knowing that your kids are well taken care of and that they're having a good time and that you can engage in the worship and the teaching that's going on in this room. Um, so it's kind of the whole family ministry, I guess, is mm -hmm. what we're trying to do. Uh, we literally started Genesis Kids the very first night we had worship on January 7th, 2007. Um, and we've seen definitely our Genesis Kids ministry grow to just beyond uh, the three, four kids that were initially coming. We now have roughly anywhere sometimes between 18 to 25 kids that are back there. Um, so 
as a church community, uh, what are some ways that we could come alongside and support you and the other leaders that are running Genesis Kids? So some practical things we could do to help. Okay, well, I would say first, uh, one thing you could do is pray for us. Pray for the Genesis Kids ministry. Pray for the kids who are coming, um, just that they would learn about God and learn about how much he delights in them. You could also pray for the Genesis Kids workers, that their relationships with God would be strong, that they would have tons of patience and creative ideas and uh, ways to interact with the kids. Um, And I would say the second way that you could help is by volunteering. We have, right now, the way it's set up, we have two... We've divided the kids into two groups. They're, they all come together in the back for a time of worship. We have a, a DVD that we play that has worship songs. We're teaching the kids some worship songs um, and arm movements, things like that, that they do all together. And you then want to demonstrate any arm movements or songs? Um, uh, there's some kids in the front row of maybe that could demonstrate, but uh, we can do that another time. <laughs> They're all hiding now. Um, so we all come together for a time of worship, and then we split the younger kids, the zero uh, ages zero to three, um, into the nursery side where they have a little, they do a Bible story, but mainly play and have fun. And then the older kids, um, so that's ages four and up when we're, uh, so we have kind of a wide range there. We have in, in one classroom, um, where they do a Bible lesson. Um, what we would like to do is to be able to split that group, the children who are in the classroom side, we'd like to be able to split it, split it into a preschool and an elementary group. Um, but we don't have enough volunteers yet. And so what it, what it means to volunteer with Genesis Kids, it doesn't mean that you need to be back there every week. We certainly want people to be in here um, worshiping and being, uh, being able to listen to the messages. So what we are trying to do is to have teachers and helpers on a six-week rotation where you would help once every six weeks. Um, so you would miss the service for that week. You'd be back there, but I promise you would have a lot of fun. Um, and so we need people, it doesn't, you don't have to be a teacher, don't have to have tons of teaching experience. We have different roles you could play. There's, um, you could choose to work with the younger children, the nursery kids, or you could be an assistant um, to the main teacher in the classroom. So there are different ways that you could help out, but if you are interested in doing that, we'd need, so ideally what we'd like to have is six volunteers back there every week. So we'd need to have everyone only serving once every six weeks, we need 36 people to do that. And we probably have about 22 right now. So um, if you'd be interested in doing that, that would be great. Or even if you're just interested in being on the um, a substitute list, if you don't want to commit to once every six weeks, but if you know people got sick and you wouldn't mind serving back there once, you know, every once in a while, um, that'd be great too. So you can contact me or Emily Gardner if you'd be interested in doing that. Hmm. It was uh, interesting when we were at Mars Hill last week, um, they were talking about uh, their uh, kids ministry, Mars Hill uh, ministry to uh, kids similar to to what Genesis has, and uh, they were talking about how they have now more men serving in their Mars Hill ministry to kids than women because uh, there was a group of guys who were really excited to meet some godly single women, and so they figured the best way (laughs) to meet godly single women was to start serving in the kids' ministry, and then all of a sudden they had almost all guys back there and got kind of awkward. So um, (laughs) I wanted to uh, encourage, this is not just a a woman thing. Uh, I feel like that's probably a stereotype in, in churches just in general, is that women take care of the kids, and I'll throw down a challenge to the men that Uh, You don't have to have kids, and you may never have even worked with kids, uh, but this is a great way to serve not only young kids, but serve uh, 
families. And we have a lot of families now starting to come to Genesis, which is exciting. So uh, if you're a guy, I would strongly encourage you, are talking once every six weeks, uh, to throw your heart uh, into and your hands into serving and come alongside uh, families and specifically these uh, young kids. Um, so, Kyla, thank you very much. Let me uh, pray for Kyla and just Genesis kids. And um, if you at all feel like, you know what, it's time for me to start serving and this is a tangible way that I can do that, I want you to talk to Kyla or to, I don't know where Emily Gardner is. Um, Emily, stand up just real quick. Um, so, <laughs> on your chair, maybe. Um, so, wow. How about that? Um, I'm just going to pray. So, God, thank you for being good. And, uh, God, as Kyla was just sharing, uh, God, you love us. You love every single person here. And uh, God, I give thanks that uh, over the last four years, uh, you have really grown our Genesis Kids community from just three or four young people coming to uh, anywhere between now 20 to 25 kids uh, back there uh, every Sunday. And so God, we give you thanks for that. We celebrate that. We're excited about that. God, we ask for even more kids because we certainly want kids to know how good you are, how loving you are, and what it looks like to have a relationship with you. It's beginning at a young age. Uh, God, thank you so much for Kyla and her service uh, to you and to this church for last four years. God, you've raised up a lot of other men and women uh, in our church. I give thanks for Emily Gardner and how she has uh, come alongside this ministry as well in the past year, uh, if longer actually. Uh, but God, I just pray that uh, we need more. And so I just pray uh, that you would raise up some men and some women in this community uh, to serve you and serve these families and kids that uh, you are bringing to uh, this church. So, God, if there's anyone in here just kind of feeling that burden right now, I pray that they would follow through on that and uh, speak with Kyle or Emily uh, after uh, today's gathering. So, God, I pray for these kids as they would go now, that they would just have an amazing time at Genesis Kids, but, God, that they would learn even more about you, how much you love them, and what it looks like to walk with you. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, Genesis Kids, have fun today. And... Uh, if you would, let's take just a minute or two or three and stand up and maybe say hello to some people around you. Shake their hands. <laughs> well, we have a very friendly community. That's good. That's good. It's a good thing. As you are sitting down, uh, I'm going to make a, a much bigger deal uh, about this actually next Sunday. So chalk this up as just uh, more planting a seed. Um, but Thanksgiving is coming up uh, in about five weeks' time, six weeks' time, on Thursday, uh, July, or July uh, Thursday, November 25th. And um, again, I'm going to speak into this a lot next week. Uh, we are a new church. We're a little over a year old, and one of our commitments was we really wanted to be a blessing to the community that God sent us to, which is here in Woburn. And so uh, this Thanksgiving... Uh, we're going to open up uh, this church uh, to feed as many people as we possibly can, which we're estimating is about 250 people. Uh, this is not just going to be a Thanksgiving for anyone who is looking for a food shelter type of thing. This is, if you just don't have family and you're looking for a place to go and celebrate Thanksgiving, you can come here. It'll be a nice home-cooked meal. Uh, but last year when Genesis did a... Uh, or a uh, Thanksgiving baskets to pass out to the community, there's about 500 families that were in need of uh, food baskets to have a Thanksgiving dinner. So there is a great need just within Woburn alone 
to have a Thanksgiving dinner. Uh, you might be in college, you just might be away from family, so this is going to be for anyone and everyone, but uh, next, this Thanksgiving, uh, we're hoping to serve about 250 people uh, a home-cooked Thanksgiving meal. Um, now, a huge challenge is we don't actually have a kitchen here, uh, so we're going to do it anyways and just figure out those minor details uh, later, but um, yes, we'll, all right, I just got that. We'll grill the turkeys outside. Uh, we probably won't do that, but um, we're estimating we're going to need about 20 20-pound 20 turkeys uh, to be able to feed the amount of people that we're willing to do. So we want you to come and enjoy, but if you have a heart also to serve uh, this Thanksgiving, uh, we're really going to hope to be a huge blessing to uh, the Woburn community and just surrounding towns and people that just need a place to go on Thanksgiving. Uh, John Bandai, John, can you stand up real quick? Is... Um, a couple of people are excited about you, John. Um, yeah, only a few. Um, John is going to be uh, running point on this, so if you have questions, uh, and along with Tracy Alexander, who's not here today, but those two will be organizing this uh, free Thanksgiving dinner. By the way, I forgot to mention, this is a free Thanksgiving dinner, so everything we're going to be doing from food and some other things, it will all be free, and hopefully it will be a huge blessing. So. Uh, let me pray for us. Uh, we're jumping into Romans. Uh, we had uh, kind of an intro message two weeks ago, and uh, this morning we're going to walk through uh, the first seven verses uh, of Romans. So I'm very excited uh, to begin this journey of uh, walking through Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, so God, we love you, and uh, we give thanks that uh, you love us first. And God, I just pray that if there's anyone uh, here today that just doesn't know who you are, how good you are, how kind you are, how gracious you are, how faithful you are. God, I just pray that today would be a tremendous breakthrough. Uh, God, you know the condition of everyone's heart that is in this place today. And God, ultimately, only you can speak to all of our hearts and minds. And I just pray in Jesus' name that you would do that. And God, as you would speak, I pray you'd fill us with grace and courage to respond to anything and everything that you're calling us to do. Uh, so God, give us ears to hear what you would have to say and give us eyes just to see what you're doing uh, in our own lives and around us, that we would be people uh, who would respond to you. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Martin Luther. This is what Martin Luther said about Romans. I shared this quote a couple weeks ago, uh, but I wanted to share it again because uh, it's, uh, it's a pretty important thing he said about the letter of Romans. This epistle, uh, epistle is a fancy word for letter, this epistle is really the chief part of the New Testament, and it is truly the purest gospel. It is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word, by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Now, I've actually had a few people come up to me and tell me that they're going to take Mr. Martin Luther up on that challenge and have already started the process of memorizing Romans. Uh, so, uh, I'll throw it down again. If you want to Put your name in that hat. Uh, this is not a competition, but this is to tuck God's word away in our heart. Uh, it is worthy not only that every Christian should know it word for word by heart, but also that he should occupy himself with it every day as the daily bread of the soul. Romans is going to do a lot of different things for us, but specifically I mentioned two weeks ago, what Romans is really going to help us do is to understand and just love the gospel. You're going to hear Paul talk about the gospel in just 
seven verses today, he mentions it a handful of times, uh, that we would really understand and be able to articulate like Paul that we love the gospel. We love the good news that God has for each of us and that we'd understand how that gospel actually plays out and lives out in our lives. And then the second thing that Romans is going to do is it's going to help us teach us to think biblically, to think rightly about God. Uh, I made this statement two weeks ago, but I said, if you think about God wrongly, incorrectly, not biblically, in just one small area maybe of your life, it will throw everything off. But if you think about God rightly, you'll be able to understand yourself, you'll be able to understand church culture, you'll be able to understand the culture around us uh, rightly. But if we get anything wrong about God, if we're thinking not rightly about God, it will show up in how we live. This uh, last week at uh, the life group that we have at our house, we're studying Romans. And one of the questions I asked, because it's really great as you go through Romans, you just get the sense that Paul has a lot of convictions about God. Uh, And so I asked the question, what are some convictions you have about God? And people went around the room and just shared some different convictions that they have about God. And I remember Kyla specifically shared a conviction. She said, I have a conviction that God is just faithful. He's always been faithful. He's always shown himself faithful. And the reality is, if you have a conviction that God is faithful, then you'll never worry. You won't have any room or place or category to worry about anything. Why? Because you're convinced. You have a conviction deep down that God's faithful. And so even when situations, circumstances look all jacked up, I don't need to worry and be anxious about it because I'm convinced God is faithful. Some other people, one person shared, I'm convinced that God is absolutely sovereign. If you're convinced, and that's a biblical truth that Paul's going to teach in specifically the letter to Romans, if you're convinced, like you have a conviction that God is sovereign, then no matter what the situation or circumstance looks like in your life, you are... You have complete confidence and trust in God that he will use that situation for your good, for your benefit, and for his glory. And so Paul's going to teach us, model ultimately for us, how to love the gospel and how it shows up in our life. And then secondly, how to think rightly about God. I I know I'm repeating myself a little bit, but if we get thoughts about God, if we're wrong in those areas, it will show up. Because if I'm not convinced that God is faithful... My life will be plagued and marked by anxiety and worry. When things start going crazy in my life, if I'm not convinced that God is sovereign in control, then my life is ultimately, it's going to show up in how I live my life. So this morning, we're going to specifically look at Paul's introduction. It's kind of weird that if you were to write a letter, can you imagine someone studying and pulling apart, picking apart the introduction to your letter? It's kind of a weird thing to do, but in Paul's introduction to Romans, it is his longest introduction of all 13 letters that he wrote to the different New Testament churches, Uh, and it's so long and so packed because he's writing to a people that have never met him face to face. They don't know necessarily who he is in terms of personal encounter or personal experience with Paul. They only know him by his reputation. So I'll ask you the question, when you think of the Apostle Paul, you don't know him personally, at least I'm pretty sure you don't. If you think you do, talk to me afterwards. We'll fix that. Um, 
When you think of Apostle Paul, what do you think of? What's, what comes to mind? What images come to mind? You could, phenomenal leader, phenomenal mentor, phenomenal church planter, phenomenal theologian, just an incredible scholar. I mean, this is a guy who, before Yoda, was Yoda smart. I mean, he, he just had, he knew so much. Is that what comes to mind when you think about the Apostle Paul? What's interesting is Paul carried this with him in his ministry, okay? He's already been doing ministry for 25 years by the time he writes the letter to the Romans. And, but one of the things that comes out in all of Paul's letters is these two themes. And the first one is this thought, weren't you the one who persecuted Christians to the point of death? There was always this looming thought in people's minds, but I see what you're doing now, but weren't you that guy? Weren't you the guy who actually tried to kill Christians, promoted the death of Christians, tried to stop this thing called Christianity, and now you're the great champion of the Christian faith? You ever have people like that in your life who they look at you now and they don't let you be who you are now and they don't let you live out what God's doing in your life now because you're still so tied in their mind to who you were 10 years ago. That happens a lot with families. When you go home, you haven't seen family or friends, that type of thing for years, and the only memory they have of you is of who you used to be, not who God's called you to be and created you to be. That's very tough. Paul lived with that. The second one is, are you really an apostle? Like, you never met Jesus personally. You weren't an eyewitness to his resurrection. You weren't one of the 12. So what gives you the right, Paul, to be an apostle? Bless you. Why should we listen to you? You ever struggle with that? Someone in your life, you're trying to share with them, you're trying to encourage, but you just get this attitude from them of, who are you to say that to me? Why should I listen to you? You're nobody. Paul, for a better part of his ministry, always had that and people had that in their minds of, weren't you the guy who tried to kill Christians? And who are you to tell us these great truths of the Christian faith? Why, what makes you an apostle? And by the way, his response, if you respond to people, if you're in that situation where people are just, they're so tied to who you used to be and not allowing you to be who God's making you now, um, and their attitude towards you is just one of, I'm not going to listen to anything you have to say. You haven't earned the right. If you respond to people in just a sense of defense or a sense of pride or a sense of arrogance, the only thing that that will do is actually solidify for people, you're just like I remember you, and you've lost your platform to speak into their life or to speak God's truth into their life. And Paul was always one who was in humility, in love. He kept being faithful to what God had called him to. So I want to read Romans in its entire, just the first seven verses. But this introduction, it's only seven verses, and it's not going to come out in uh, our English uh, Bibles, but this is one sentence in Greek. This is a crazy long sentence. There's no division breaks. There's no verses. This is when he starts with the very first word in Romans, which is Paul. And for seven verses, this is one thought that Paul has. 
And this is what Romans chapter 1, uh, the very introduction to Romans says. Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, the gospel he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to his human nature was a descendant of David and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to obedience that comes from faith. And you also are among those who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one sentence. That's a really, really long sentence, and it might seem weird in our context and culture. Who starts a letter off by that? Don't you just start a letter off by, Dear Michael... And get to your point, love whoever. He starts his letter off by saying, Paul. And then he walks specifically, and this is what we're going to cover this morning, who he is, what his message is, where his message comes from, and how this message is going to have an impact on those in Rome. Remember, they're thinking, we don't know you, we never met you, so why should we listen to you? He says in verse 1, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus called to be an apostle, and set apart for the gospel of God. I love this. Paul, he knew his posture. He knew his position or his calling, and he knew clearly what his mission was. When I consider the apostle Paul, this is a guy who knew himself. So another question for you. Do you know you? As it, when someone, I don't know if anyone has asked you this question so I'll ask it for you. Who are you? Just think about that for a minute. And if you're having some thoughts come into your mind of, well, you know, this is what I do. I'm not asking the question, what do you do? I'm not asking for your title, not even asking for your name. Do you know who you are? Anyone ever see the movie Anger Management? You shouldn't have. Um, but just in case you did, the one scene where Jack Nicholson, they're sitting in the group, and he's asking Adam Sandler, who are you? And he responds by, well, my name is so-and-so. That's not what I asked you. I didn't ask your name. Who are you? Kind of has this look like, well, this is what I do. And he goes to talk about his, he's like, I didn't ask you what you do. Who are you? And he just is struggling to find an answer. And then finally, he gets all angry, hence why he's in anger management. Who are you? How do you actually answer that question? Not what do you do, not what is your name, but as you think about who you are, how do you define that? How do you answer that? I think if you don't have an answer for that, what's going to happen ultimately is you'll just wander from thing to thing, from relationship to relationship, from different seasons of life to different seasons of life, trying as hard as you can to figure that out. The, be the beauty is what the gospel does for us, what God declares. God doesn't want anyone in this room to be confused as to how you should answer that question of who are you. 
in uh, Mere Christianity, I like how C.S. Lewis said this. He said, until you have given up yourself to him, you will not have a real self. It's another way of saying, if you want to understand who you are, you have to go to God. I don't know who I am outside of knowing God. And so if you're here and you don't have that relationship with God through Jesus, you will struggle to ever have an answer beyond this is my name and this is what I do in trying to define who you are. For the Apostle Paul, I am a servant of Jesus Christ. What's interesting is you look at the language, the original language, Paul had six options that he could have chosen. If he was going to define, describe who he was in language of a servant, he had six options that he could choose from in the Greek language. And the word that he chose to define, to describe who he was, was the most degrading word for servant. I want you to picture, if you will, um, a slave market. In the first century, this is slavery. I think I mentioned to you before, there's about a million people in Rome. And of the million people, there was over 500,000 people who were, in, who were slaves. Different types of slavery, but nonetheless, over half a million people were considered slaves. So they would have a slave market. They would stand up an individual on some type of platform. Everyone would look at them. The auctioneer would start the auction. The bidding would go. And whoever would be the highest bidder for that slave, that slave would be called doulos. Doulos is the Greek word for slave, understood also as servant. And so when Paul says, I am a servant of Jesus, this is the word he chose. He had six to choose from, and he chose this word doulos. I am a slave of Jesus. Isn't that phenomenal? Of all the ways Paul could have thought of himself, I'm a theologian, I'm wicked smart, I am, I'm Apostle Paul. He starts Romans 1.1, Paul, a doulos, a slave for Jesus Christ. That just, wow. Do you describe who you are in that language? Did that come, now you don't have to raise your hands, but when you were thinking about, well, who am I? Did anyone think, I'm a, I'm a slave of Jesus, that's who I am? For Paul, he was absolutely convinced that his life had literally been purchased by Jesus, that his life was purchased ultimately by the blood of Jesus. So all of who he was belonged to all of who Jesus is. As someone in the slave market would purchase, literally throw down money to purchase someone, that individual owned that person. In Paul's thinking, in his mind, Jesus laid down his life. He purchased me. So all of me belongs to all of Jesus. I realize that just even bringing up slavery is a very hard it's hard to imagine this language of slavery, but if you're a Christian, this is something you should be very comfortable with, of calling yourself a doulos of Jesus, a slave for Jesus, a servant of Jesus. 
I'm not talking about modern-day slavery, which is still happens. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about when I consider who I am, I remember what Jesus has done to purchase me. 1 Corinthians 6 says this, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Just sit with that for a second. As you consider your life, you can either consider it one of two ways. I'm my own man. I'm my own woman. I do what I want, when I want, how I want, for however long I want. I don't have to acknowledge or report, be held accountable to anyone. Why? Because I'm the master of my life. That's one approach. And I would argue that's not only the wrong approach, but that's a miserable existence. It's a very lonely existence. Paul says in verse 19, Do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. Verse 20, you were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. If you believe that you have literally been purchased by Jesus Christ, his life for your life, then moving forward, you should be not only comfortable and confident, but convinced to say, this is who I am. My life is not my own. My life is defined and understood in being a slave of Jesus, being a servant, a doulos of Jesus. What's really helpful in this imagery, if Jesus is my master, if Jesus is the one who has all of me, all I can say is humbly to him, thank you that I can entrust my life into his hands. Why? Because he's good. He's kind. He's gracious. He's not wicked. He's not fickle. He's not sinful. He's not selfish. He's not looking to abuse, take advantage. The one that I consider to be my master, the one who I am a slave for and of, is Jesus. He's good. I hope if you're a Christian, you're hearing that and be like, yeah, I have no issue, no qualm with saying that I am a slave of and for Jesus. Paul starts by saying, I'm a servant. I am a servant, a doulos of Jesus. I wanted to ask another question. Would you consider yourself a servant of God, a servant of Jesus, or would you consider yourself a worker for Jesus or a worker for God? These are very different things. You either are a servant, that's how you see yourself, understand yourself of who you are, or you see, potentially, you see yourself as one who is a worker. What I love about Paul, he used to work for God, but he converted to being a servant to God. Paul, when he was a Pharisee, he was a worker for God. He, he did, he performed for God in hopes that he would get things from God. But when he met Jesus, he was converted not only to Christianity, but he was converted from and actually saved from being a worker for God and being a servant. If you're a worker, here's my very short list. You work as a way to get from God. The mentality is, God, I did this for you. Surely you can do this for me. I did this for you, God, whatever the this is, then the thought well, surely, God, you're going to do that for me. 
You work as a way to perform God, perform for God. God, did you just see what I did? That was a pretty good thing, wasn't it? I hope you're impressed. You work as a way to control God. God, again, I'm doing all of these things. Come on, there's got to be a little bit coming back my way. God, I'm not going to do as much as I'm doing for you unless you start giving me something. So you work as a way to justify sin. I am working so hard for God, certainly he's not going to mind if I indulge in this. Certainly he's not going to mind if I look at this over here. Why? Well, because God's so impressed with how hard I work for him, he'll ignore kind of the stuff going on over here. Or you work as a way to potentially just look down on other people, kind of like the Pharisees did. Man, at least I'm not like that guy. I'm doing all of this and this and this. When you work for God, it typically tends to produce in us a very self-righteous attitude. But when you see yourself, when you see your life through the lens of not a worker for God, but a servant, a doulos, a slave of Jesus, I am just set free completely from having to work to get something from God because God has already given me everything. And I can serve him not as a way to get something because I already have everything from him. I hope that's helpful in making a distinction between don't be a worker for God. That's not who you are. See yourself in the lens of, I am a servant of God. Go back to the question, who are you? To, the, to Paul and to any of us, if you are not confused as to who you are, you have conviction, you have confidence to say, this is who I am. Well, you won't need to worry about answering that question anymore, and you will have now been set up to understand God's call on your life. I will not understand God's call on my life, and neither will you, unless you first understand who you are. Romans 1.1 goes on, Paul was called to be an apostle. We're still in verse 1. We've got a couple years to go through this, so it's okay. Paul was called to be an apostle. What's an apostle? An apostle is just a word for someone who is sent, a sent one. So when Jesus called the 12 disciples, called them apostles, they were known as sent ones. Or another way to think about this is one who is sent in order to accomplish the mission of the one who sent him. They are an ambassador, representing, speaking for. I love this verse in uh, Luke chapter 10. It, it really articulates what Jesus had entrusted the disciples, the apostles, to do. This is Luke 10, verse 16. He who listens to you listens to me. He who rejects you rejects me. But he who rejects me rejects him who sent me. So an apostle is one who would speak for, represent, be the voice, the hands, the feet, the heart, the mind, would be the same authority as if it were the king that they were representing. He who listens to you, they're ultimately listening to me. He who rejects you, they're not rejecting you. Ultimately, they're rejecting me, and ultimately, they're rejecting God. It was really crucial for the Apostle Paul to understand what he was called to do. He understood who he was. I'm a doulos. I'm a servant. I'm a slave for Jesus. 
and understand what he was called to do, called to be sent, a sent one, an apostle for Jesus. Now, why do you think it would be crucial for him, ultimately I'm going to ask the same of us, why would it be crucial for you to understand what you are called to do? If Paul was not convinced that he was called to be an apostle, I guarantee he probably would have quit on day two. He may have made it to day three because he was a trooper, but if he was not convinced that God had told him to do this, that God had called him to do this, he would have quit. Why? Because the cost was too great. It was just too difficult to challenge the opposition, the persecution. It was just too much. If you know what God has called you to do and you are convinced of that call, then regardless of what comes against you, no matter what the situation or circumstance opposes you, you will stick. Why? Because God told me to do this. I have wrestled for the better part of the last three or four years, if not longer, but really wrestled with God. Do you really want me to be part of planting Genesis as a church? Because if you're not calling me to do this, I want nothing to do with it. Went through a good process of a little over two years of having other men, other individuals speak into my life. I'm convinced. You can, people can say whatever they want, but I'm convinced that this was God's call for me. Right now at Genesis, we've got a handful of men and women, uh, men who are going through a process to understand, are they called to serve God and serve Genesis, this church, in the role, position of elder? And we've got some men and some women who have gone through a process as well. Are they called to serve God and serve this community as deacons? One of the things that I've been trying hard to press into is you better know the difference of just a good idea and God's call on your life. Because if it's just a good idea and you're like, yeah, I think it's a good idea to be an elder, I kind of, I look like one, you know, I smell like one, I just, it kind of makes sense. I don't know why I said elder smells, I, I don't know where that came from. Sometimes I just have to tell myself that thought that's coming to your mouth, just stop it. Um, <laughs> If it's just a good idea, it seems to be just a good fit, the puzzle piece, it seems to connect. I tell you what, if it's just a good idea, when persecution, hard times, suffering comes, you will bail. Why? Because it was just a good idea. And that idea is now a bad idea, and I will walk away from the bad idea. But if you are called of God, then no matter what happens, you stick. Not in pride and arrogance, because you have confidence and conviction that God called you to do this. If you know who you are, a doulos, a servant, a slave for Jesus, then you will begin to understand God's call on your life. And I will make a pretty strong case that every single one of you has been called of God. There's not one person in here who will be called to be a capital A apostle. Okay, That's it. There are no more apostles, capital A apostles like Paul, like John or Peter, okay? None of, no one's called to that. But I am convinced that God has a call on all of your lives. Calling is not just for the professional. Well, you're called to be a pastor or you're called to be an elder. You're called to be whatever it might be. I really want you to just sit, wrestle. What is God's calling on your life? Do you know? 
how would you know what God's calling on your life is? I think many people might not know what God's calling on their life is because they haven't stopped long enough to wrestle with, God, what is my calling? It's got to start with God understanding who I am because of what God has done for me. I'm a servant. That's what Paul said. Secondly, I'm an apostle. I'm one sent by God. I'm an ambassador. So what is your call? And by the way, this is the beauty of the imagery of the church as the body of Christ. Paul breaks this language down quite a bit in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Some will be arms, some will be legs, some will be eyes, some will be feet, some will be other parts of the body. Point being, we are all called by God to serve God and to serve others through our calling. One of the most helpful things for me in trying to figure out and understand what God had called me to do was ask not only God and sit with God and wrestle with God, but begin to just ask some other people, hey, this is what I'm sensing God's calling me to do. Does this, does this make sense to you? Does this line up with what you, how you know me, how you understand me? So be willing to ask other people to speak into your life and say, this is what I think I'm understanding my call to be. What do you think? Will you pray about that with me? If you know some leaders in this church, if someone's leading a life group, how did you know God called you to lead a life group? Allow them to share that with you. Be like, okay, that, that resonates because I'm starting to sense God's calling me. And anytime you start to wrestle with, is this God's call in my life? You have to also, is this biblical? Or am I just making this stuff up? I think I'm called to be the next Apostle Paul. No, you're not. But am I called to lead or to serve in this capacity? Maybe. So learn to just sit with God and ask God that question and know that God actually wants to reveal His calling on your life. Okay. He knew who He was. I'm a servant. Secondly, He knew what God had called Him to do. And then thirdly, he, understand, he understood his mission. We've got who I am, we've got what I've been called to do, and now we've got a clear articulation of what my mission ultimately is. And it says, God set me apart. Uh, in verse 1, uh, again, it says, Paul, a servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. The irony of this is Paul used to be a Pharisee. Before he met Jesus, he was a Pharisee. And the Greek language for Pharisee is one who is a separated one, to be separate. And so it's interesting, Paul uses this language, I've been set apart, no longer just to be one who loves the law, but I've been set apart by God for God's gospel. I want you to catch that in verse 1. This is not Paul's gospel, this is God's gospel. This is God's good news. God is the originator of the gospel, not Paul. You're going to hear Paul talk a lot about the gospel, but what Paul is talking about is this is God's gospel. I'm not making this stuff up. This is not my good news. This is the good news that is coming from God to humanity. Here's a question for you. Do you really actually believe that the gospel of God, God's gospel, God's good news is actually good news? Hypothetical, 
if I were to tell you, when you leave church today, I've got some really good news for you. You're going to collect an envelope as you walk out the door, and in that envelope will be a check for $1 million for each of you. Now, some of you would be like, a million? That's not enough. Okay, a billion dollars, okay? All of you, that's the good news I have to share for you. You walk out of here, you get an envelope for a billion dollars. A lot of us would say, that's, that's some pretty, pretty good news. Now, if I told you, ah, but the good news that is coming from God, communicated to you, is that you can have peace with God that your sins are forgiven, that you are absolutely loved by God completely. And all of this was not of yourselves. You didn't do anything. It was done for you in Jesus, that you have eternity in heavens, been spared from hell. Huh, a billion dollars or peace with God. A billion dollars or God loves me. A billion dollars or just keep reading John 3.16. I don't really think a lot of people, I'm not saying all, have a concept of how good the good news is coming from God. Why? Because we only live for what we can see. We have no concept, and I know I'm speaking very big language of kind of all. I know I'm speaking generally, but generally speaking, we don't live in light of eternity. We don't look at our life in the grand scheme that this is just a blip at best. The psalmist talks about that our life is just a mist. As it's starting to get cold out, you breathe, you can see your breath for a second, maybe two, and it's gone. That's what your life is like in the grand scheme of eternity. The good news that I hope you would be convinced of, would a billion dollars be great? I actually don't think so, because I know a lot of rich people, and they seem to be a lot more miserable with the more money they have. I hope that you would be absolutely convinced that there is no greater news, there is no better good news than the good news that God has for us in the gospel. Romans chapter 1, verse 2 through 4, Paul articulates this is the gospel. This is the good news. Verse 2, the gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures regarding his son, who as to human nature, was a descendant of David, and who through the spirit of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. The good news is Jesus. That's the good news that is coming from God to us. That there is no better news anyone could ever hear than the good news of Jesus. And I'll just point out two things quickly. When Paul talks about the good news, the gospel of God, the very first part of verse 2 says this, the gospel he promised beforehand. God promised this good news back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. When humanity decided to sin, Adam and Eve decided to rebel against God, they were separated from God. And God said, that is not acceptable. And so God's plan of salvation kicked in because God desires to have a relationship with those he created. You, me, that's good news, that I don't have to be separated from God both now and for eternity. And so Genesis 3.15, 
and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and he's speaking to the, uh, to the devil, to the serpent, to the, uh, to the enemy, and between you and your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. This he is a personal pronoun. It's, a very, it's known as the proto-euangelion, the first gospel, where God spoke to the serpent and said, you will not have victory over my creation. Jesus, he will crush your head through his death and through his resurrection. If Satan's not defeated, I don't have a relationship with God. If Jesus did not come, if Jesus did not live a perfect life, if Jesus did not raise from the dead, as verse 2, 3, and 4 talk about, I'm still separated from God, lost in my sin. So the first thing about the gospel is God fulfilled his promise. And I just I want you to know that when God promises something, how many people, raise of hand, have ever had someone break their promise to you? Come on. I'm guessing all of us. It's horrific when someone promises that they will do something and they don't do it. That's painful. Dad, you said you were going to play football with me. I can't do it right now. Just the look on his face, I mean, it looks like I just hit him or something. But Dad, you promised. All right, let's go. You'll be Michigan today. I'll be Ohio State and you will lose. A broken promise is painful, but that's not who God is. First part of the gospel, the gospel, he promised. And the second aspect of the gospel, it's, it's just about Jesus. If you hear a gospel or good news about God that has nothing to do with Jesus, that's not the gospel. The gospel from God, God's gospel, God's good news is about Jesus. In verse 3 and 4, it talks about Jesus and his Human nature, descended from David. Now, if you're Jewish, this is a key verse. Why? Because you knew that the prophets in Scripture had testified that the Savior, the Messiah, would come from the line of David. Jesus, in his human nature, comes from the line of David. He is the Messiah. And then in verse 4, how it talks about Jesus was resurrected from the dead, speaking to his divinity. This is a hard concept to understand, but Jesus was fully God and fully man. Jesus was God-man, God incarnate, God in flesh. This is the good news. God didn't make us work our way to him. God came to us. I don't have to perform for him. I don't have to... God came to me. That's the hope we have in the gospel. I'm not trying to work my way to God. And can I just say, that's what sets apart Christianity from any world religion. It's the difference of man trying to work his way to God and God coming to us. I like option two. I'll pick that door any day of the week. God came to us. This is his good news. Romans chapter 1, verse 5 says this, Through him and for his namesake, we received grace and apostleship to call people from among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. A big theme in this letter to the Romans is going to be the theme of grace. There was nowhere at all where Paul had this idea of, I'm an apostle, I'm called of God, sent by God, 
entrusted with this message from God because I'm Paul and I'm just awesome. This is all by grace, Paul says. Through him, through Jesus, and for his namesake, we received grace. I didn't deserve this. I didn't earn it. I didn't. It's all by Jesus and by grace. And I think the sooner that you and I can understand that our entire life is by the grace of God, you will just be set free from the roller coaster of trying to perform for God. If you can understand today and leave here today saying it's all by Him, through Him, because of Jesus and by His grace, you'll start to see some things show up in your life like joy and peace and contentment. Why? Because it's by His grace. I don't have to work for it. I'm not trying to earn it. I'm not trying to buy it. It's by His grace. This is a question that we're actually going to wrap up with. Paul knew he was who he was. He knew God's call in his life, and he knew his mission, what he was sent by God to do, to be one who proclaimed the good news that started with God and is coming from God, the good news of the gospel of Jesus. What impact should this have on our life? Because he puts it pretty clearly in verse 5. What impact should the gospel, this good news from God, have on my life? Is this just news that I just tuck away as, well, that's good to know? Or is this news coming from God for me that should wreck me, change me, call me to do some things different in my life? From among all the Gentiles to the obedience that comes from faith. The gospel given to us and the result of us receiving by faith the gospel is that what would show up in each of our lives is obedience. Obedience stems from the faith, and faith comes from receiving the grace that God has given us in Jesus. Can't say this hopefully loud enough. Disobedience separated us from God. Disobedience today separates us from experiencing and enjoying the life God has for you. If you're disobedient in just one area of your life, it impacts all of your life. There's no such thing as like situational obedience or kind of part-time disobedience. I'm either obedient or I'm not. And if I'm disobedient, I'm just missing God, I'm separated from God. I'm not hearing from God. I'm not understanding God. Ultimately, I'm just doing my own thing, so why would I even care? The gospel, by grace, received through faith, produces in each of us obedience. I love how Paul starts with this obedience in his introduction. And do you know how Paul finishes his letter to the Romans? I didn't think you were going to, so I'm just going to read it. Romans 16. Okay? The last three verses in his gospel, where he starts, he comes back full circle and finishes. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past. Verse 26, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all nations might believe and obey him. 
And then verse 27, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. All of this was revealed to all of us so that we would believe, we would have faith, and that in our faith, we would be obedient. Genuine faith always produces obedience. A.W. Tozer said it like this in one of his writings. Faith, as Paul saw it, was a living, flaming thing leading to surrender and obedience to the commandments of Christ. And if I've got, if I've received, by his grace, Jesus, God's good news, the gospel, then welling up in me is one who desires to be obedient, not because I'm trying to get something from God, because I've already got everything from God. I've already received that gospel. But flowing from me because of faith is the desire to be obedient. So i really wrap up just with this question. Sometimes when you even hear the word obedience, immediately something comes to mind. So what's coming to your mind right now? If I ask the question, what is God calling you to be obedient with? What is it? And the longer I'm not obedient to that, the longer I will continue just to experience that separation of not being connected with God, not experiencing the life God has for me. Some of it might be, if you're married, might be with your spouse. You've got some tough conversations to have, apologies to make, repentance. That's what God's calling you to be obedient with. Some of it is just might be good old-fashioned sin that you're refusing to submit to God and be obedient with. Some of it's a relationship, a career thing. What's God calling you to be obedient with? Jonathan Edwards um, was uh, just a phenomenal pastor, preacher, author. And um, I came across this, uh, uh, this quote, and uh, I think sometimes we have a hard time being obedient because we don't see anyone else doing it. And we use other people as an excuse of, you know, no one else is being obedient with this kind of stuff, so why should I? And we use other people as an excuse to get in the way of us being obedient. And I like how Jonathan Edwards said this. Resolution one, I will live for God. Resolution two, if no one else does, I still will. You might look around and be like, you know, no one else is going hard after the gospel at work in them and it's showing up in obedience. You can use other people as an excuse to miss the life that God has for you through obedience Or you can say, regardless of what my spouse, regardless of what my friends, regardless of what the relationship, regardless of what's happening around me, I'm still going to do it. And one of the things that I've learned about obedience is it's contagious. It just takes one or two people to start being obedient to God that it starts to catch in other people's lives. And so I would just ask you, What is God calling you right now as you sit here to be obedient to him with? And would you be willing to say, God, today I'm done. Moving forward, I'm not walking in disobedience anymore. I am moving forward in obedience. Not because I'm some hard worker and I'm mustering up this great faith. Because of your gospel, 
through grace, received by faith, outworking of me is now obedience. Paul finishes the last uh, two verses. And you also, among those who are called to belong to Christ, to all in Rome, who are loved by God and called to be, his, called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great introduction to a letter. If you were at all wondering, should we listen to this guy? We never met him. He's got a reputation. Should we listen to him? He's done some things in the past. We're not sure if if he's really an apostle. If I just would have had that one sentence, I would have been hooked. Because he made less about himself and elevated who God is. Bless you. Verse 6 and 7, we are called to belong to Jesus. We are loved by God and we are saints. I love this picture of you are a saint. If you're a Christian, you're a saint. You're not working to be a saint. You are a saint. What's really interesting in the, in the Bible, no one ever is called a singular saint. Saint Peter, that wasn't his name. Saint Mary, Saint whoever. The Christian community, if you are a Christian, we are saints. God's declared that. That's who we are called to belong to Jesus, loved by God, and to be saints. I'm excited to go through Romans, especially after studying this introduction of how much I still have to learn, and hopefully you do as well, of the gospel of God and the gospel working in our lives, received by grace, through faith, welling up into us to be men and women, who understand who we are, understand what God's called us to do, and understand clearly this is my mission, and I'm living that out. I'm going to pray and I invite you to pray along with me. Um, so we would finish our time together with some worship and celebration of communion. I asked a lot of questions today, but... I want you to really pray through and respond to the question of obedience. Whatever it is that God's just kind of burdened your heart with and that's just you're thinking about now, be willing to respond to God and say, God, forgive me for this, and I'm responding to you in obedience this day, moving forward. And if you're here today and you're just even hearing this good news, this good news is for everyone. This is not just for, this is for you. Like, if you were a Gentile living in Rome, you'd be thinking, this is not just for the Jews anymore, this is for all of us. If you've never received the good news in your life that you are loved by God, demonstrated through Jesus Christ, then receive that good news in your life today. And let Jesus define who you are. Let Jesus help you to understand what you've been called to do and what your mission is. So, Lord Jesus, I give you thanks. That in one sentence, in Paul's introduction to Romans, says so much about who you are, God, and what you've done, and God, ultimately, how we are to respond. God, I just trust that you have been speaking to men and women's hearts today. 
God, I do pray that if there is someone here that has never really received by grace, they've been working for it, trying to figure it out, but if they've never just received by grace the good news of Jesus Christ, I pray that today they would receive that, accept Jesus Christ as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, the one who forgives our sins and makes us right with you. God, I just pray they'd receive your son Jesus today and even just say that simple prayer of Jesus, I receive you as Lord and Savior. And God, I just also trust that there's many of us not just struggling with, but really being pressed hard on areas in our life that we need to surrender in obedience to you. God, just by your, your, your grace at work, we need more grace, but your grace at work in our lives, just pray every single one of us would respond in obedience to you in this place today. Jesus, as always, we give you thanks that you did for each of us what we could not do for ourselves in coming and living a perfect life and paying the penalty for our sin. And at communion, we declare and we remember everything that you have done for us. And we give you thanks. If you're not a Christian, this is not for you to do, but it is our desire that you'd become a Christian. And you can do that today by receiving Jesus and coming and celebrating communion.